Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 and 2 actually. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Father, we come before you grateful that you are a rebuilding God in the midst of a fallen creation that has rebelled against you. We're grateful for this book that you have inspired and preserved for us. And so, Father, we pray today for grace to hear, grace to apply, and, Lord, we need your grace to be exhorted and encouraged as we walk in this land today. In Jesus' name, amen. King Alfred, who was in England, and his brother um, Ethelred were both kings, and they were dealing with an invasion of the Vikings. Um, King Alfred was 22 years of age, and four days ago he had his first experience in battle, and it had not gone too well. And he settles down with his men, and he, he tells them, listen, it's time for you to be like men. It's time for you to fight for the king. It's time for you to trust in the God who is sovereign over all things. And he led them through a midnight march through the woods. The next morning they came out into this open plain in which this Viking horde was coming. And the horde didn't concern him as much as the fact that he couldn't find his brother who was supposed to be there. The plan was they were both going to meet on the battlefield to face this Viking horde. What he didn't know was that his brother had decided to call the priest to his tent and have a special time of prayer before going into battle. And here he is facing the horde, and here he has to lead with what seems to be all odds against him. As we look at our country, as we look at our churches, as we look at our families in this country, uh, we're very much in the same place that Nehemiah was, a place where Jerusalem has the gates burned and the wall is broken down and the enemies are coming in. What do you hang on to in those times? What is your rock and what is your strength when you see the walls broken down, when you see the enemy flooding in? Nehemiah is a very practical book for us today. Uh, as we go through this, not only for our country, also for our church, also for our families. We're going to look today at the keys to rebuilding to the glory of God. The keys to rebuilding to the glory of God. Those who love the Lord's kingdom know his word, they pray, and they do everything they can to advance the gospel and call others to do the same. This is what we're going to see in Nehemiah's case today. As we learned last week, Nehemiah heard, and the week before that, Nehemiah hears, hears the message coming back from Jerusalem that Jerusalem is in disarray. This was in probably November, December of that year. This was 20 years into the reign of Artaxerxes. At about seven years into the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra takes a group back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple because the temple was completely de devastated by the Babylonians. And they have had their own set of fights, as we read in Ezra, 
Uh, and there were fights in which the, the leaders in the country wanted them to stop building. And they had to stop building for a while. And then they had to appeal to the king to start building again. Ezra and Nehemiah really, at one time, were one book. And they really fit together because they're, they're literally a, a sequence of what happens in the rebuilding. If you remember, because of Israel's sin, God allowed the northern kingdom to be destroyed by the Assyrian army. And literally pulled and taken all over the face of the earth. And then later, because Judah would not repent, God allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy the city and take the people captive into a foreign land. If you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25, God tells them as through, through Moses exactly what's going to happen to them. If they don't obey the Lord. And this is before they ever get into the promised land. He warns them what will happen if they're not faithful. Verse 25, when you, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And we are literally seeing the first part of this has already happened 70 years before in the destruction of Babylon. And now God has stirred the heart of Ezra. God has stirred the heart of Nehemiah. And he is in the process of going back and rebuilding what he destroyed because of the sin of the people. We go back to Nehemiah. In chapter 1, he hears the situation and the conditions that they're dealing with. And if you'll notice, as soon as he hears these words, he sits down and he weeps and he mourns for days. The condition of Israel, the condition of God's kingdom caused him to mourn and to pray and to petition the God of heaven. You know, I guess the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we, as we look at the state of the church, as we look at the state of our families, as we look at the state of our nation, does it cause us to mourn? Does it cause us to pray and petition God? Or do we kind of have an attitude that, well... 
They're getting what they deserve. They should have better, stronger families. Our nation shouldn't turn away from God. I want you to look at Nehemiah's response in this. He mourns, and then he prays to God, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he's talking to God and reminding God that he's a covenant-keeping God. And he's reminding himself that God's an awesome God who can turn things around. He says, let your ear be attentive and your ears open to the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. So notice his continuance in prayer, day and night. He is not, he's like the widow. He's never going to quit praying. He's never going to quit asking for justice. And then notice he says this, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Notice how Nehemiah doesn't set himself off as being perfect or of not of the problem. He includes himself as the problem. And I think we, as God's people, need to say we as a nation of the United States have sinned against God. And we are responsible for where this country is today. It is the church It is the people who name the name of Jesus who have failed to be salt and light in this world, who have in some cases fled to protection in different areas and have not been able to be out there dealing with the issues at hand. And Nehemiah confesses not only for himself but for the people and asks God to be merciful Because he knows that the rebuilder doesn't rebuild unless there's repentance. Whether it's in your life or it's in your family, whether it's in our church, whether it's in our nation, the rebuilder doesn't rebuild without repentance. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utter parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants. And your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. As he prays to God, he says, God, you've redeemed them. You've already redeemed them from Egypt in which they were slaves. Praise God, we have a redemptive God. Even though we have experienced the result of our sin, God comes to redeem us. And he is reminding God that if his people repent, he will gather them again. So he is holding on to the promises of God. He is holding on to the sovereignty of God as he looks at a horrible situation in which he is literally powerless to do anything. Israel is in disrepair. He is the cupbearer of the king, but he's a captive. And so is the people of Israel in Babylon or in Persia as it is now. He's going nowhere. 
He has no authority. He has no possessions or ability to, to, to do anything to solve the problem in Jerusalem. Or we like Nehemiah, do we see our helplessness? Do we see the fact that we will not, even with the best election results in the world, turn this country around? Do we understand that? That we are totally dependent upon the God of the universe to do what only he can do. And this is where Nehemiah is. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So he hears about this report in November, December. He's now standing before Artaxerxes in probably April. He's been praying for four months, besieging the throne of God. And we see here in chapter 2 that he comes into the presence of Artaxerxes. He is in a position of influence. He is a trusted man. He's the cupbearer. No food goes into Artaxerxes' mouth that doesn't first go into his mouth. He is the cupbearer. He drinks every cup of wine before the king does. He tests all food. He is trusted because there's always a, a plot afoot to dis- poison the king or destroy the king. And so he comes into the presence of the king. And here he is. And the king notices his face is downcast and his sadness. And the king asks the question, why is your face sad? And, and Nehemiah is afraid. Why is my servant acting peculiar? Could there be a plot afoot? If there's a plot afoot, I need to get rid of him and whoever else I can find who's part of the plot. So his first words out of his mouth are, let the king live forever. <laughs> I want you to live forever. I want a blessing on you. My sadness is not because of your kingdom or anything like that. My sadness is because the land of my father's is in ruins. And I am deeply troubled by that. Notice the king's response. His response is, what are you requesting? Where did that come from? Was there something in Nehemiah's demeanor that gave him the idea that maybe Nehemiah had a plan? He asked, what is, what are you requesting? And so here Nehemiah does a quick prayer. So I prayed to the God of heaven. So notice, Nehemiah becomes aware of the trouble. He begins to beseech the only one who can solve the problem. And the problem is not just that the walls of Jerusalem are are torn down. The problem is, is that the kingdom work of God is being hindered. And it bothers him that the kingdom work of God is being hindered. And that's why Ezra was sent back to rebuild the temple. And now to protect that area, we had to rebuild the wall. So it's all about kingdom work for him. It's all about God's kingdom going forward. Remember Jesus' prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the passion of Nehemiah. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done. So he knows his only hope to be effective is for God to intervene. Look at what happens. So I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah to the cities of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. He had been praying and praying and praying and waiting for this opening. He didn't go, well, I don't know. I haven't thought about that yet. That was not his response. I need to go back. I need to help rebuild the wall. Listen to what the king said. How long will you be gone and when will you return? That's a logical question, isn't it? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And as I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I have come to Judah. And let a letter go to Asaph, who's the keeper of the forest, that I may get timber to build with to rebuild the wall. The king granted me what I asked for the good, love just underline this, for the good hand of my God was upon me. God opened the heart of the king. And if you'll notice in verse 9, not only did he give him everything he asked, he threw in a bonus. Verse 9, now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Isn't that amazing? So he makes his appeal to the king. And number one, he doesn't lose his life. Number two, I want you to notice this man didn't just pray. This man planned. He prayed and he planned. Waiting for the opportunity that might be given to him so that he could give a presentation. You could almost see him just pulling out his 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 MacBook Pro, putting a PowerPoint up there and showing the king exactly how he, how he planned to make this thing work. He knew exactly how long he would be gone. He knew that he would need letters of passage from the different countries so that he wouldn't be stopped. He knew that he needed building supplies from the king's forests And he had already in his mind laid out this plan. You know, a lot of times we pray and we hope God's going to do something, but we never make a plan. And God opens a door and we don't have a plan. And therefore, we're not able to take advantage of what he wants us to do. God's work is always preempted by himself, but it's always followed through with his people. He's always the primary mover, the primary rebuilder, but then we are the secondary ones who follow along beside. But we're called to plan, and Nehemiah's a beautiful picture of this. He thinks this thing through. And then, interestingly enough, the king even provides him with protection arriving there. Now, when you look at Ezra and look at Nehemiah, you have two different sides of the coin. Ezra, remember, felt bad asking for any help. And so they bore down and prayed and fasted for a while and trusted God was going to get there with no protection whatsoever. And he did. 
In this scenario, Nehemiah doesn't, doesn't tell us here that he pray, he asked the king for protection, but the king threw in protection anyway, and he was glad to take it. The methods are different, aren't they? Who had more faith, Ezra or Nehemiah? They both had faith. They both were about doing God's work. God provided for Nehemiah. Now, don't be surprised, but in verse 10, we, hear, we see the word but. So everything's been flowing in the right direction so far, correct? The king's been open to Nehemiah's appeal. The king is receptive to it. He's excited about it. He helps him do all that he needs to do to make his mission go. Everything's going great, and then we get this but. But always tells you we're going which direction? The other direction, Right? But when Sanballat and his good friend Tobiah hear this, they are displeased greatly that someone has come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Not uncommon like it is today, is it? Christians and Israel are not people that get a lot of support, are they? Whatsoever, there is a hatred for the people of God. And there's always opposition to rebuilding. Mark that down. Whether it's building a church, building your family, rebuilding a nation, whatever it is, there will be opposition to the fight. How do you handle opposition? Is that a sign that God's not in the work? If that's your mindset then you're never going to do anything for God because there's always going to be opposition. Always opposition. From within and from without. Right now we're seeing this is opposition from without. Later into the book of Nehemiah, we're going to find out he had problems within the camp of Israel himself and trying to keep people on the same page and getting the work complete. So he now has landed and what does he do in verses 11 through 16? He goes on a midnight reconnaissance. He gets on his horse. He goes out the valley gate. He goes around and views all the walls to determine the damage that's there. He tells no one why he's there. He doesn't play all of his cards right away. He's heard of the damage. He now wants to see the damage as he's making his plans Notice here in verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Notice that verse right there says he's not going to do it on his own. God raises up a man to do a work, but he has to have a lot of people come through and carry through on that work for it to be accomplished. And he knew he needed the Jews and the priests and the officials and the nobles. He needed everyone on the same page to get this wall rebuilt. You know, when you go to the doctor, they may get your medical history and and they may hear all the reports about what your health is like and you tell them all your testimony about how you feel. The bottom line is they go beyond what they hear, don't they? They run tests. They examine you for themselves before they make a diagnosis. 
Nehemiah took the time to make sure he understood exactly what needed to be done. You know, one of the challenges in our day is that we are so busy that if there are problems in our own life or our family's life or our church's life or our nation's life, it has to get to almost a catastrophic level before we even realize there's a problem. This country has been going down the road, down a bad road for quite a few years, but only recently, probably in that last, what, five years, maybe 10 years, we begin to realize the depth of the danger in which we're heading. You know, dads, are you aware of what goes on in your own home? Are you aware of the state of your own family? Have you gotten out on your horse at night and rode around the camp to inspect the walls? As leadership, are we, have we inspected the walls of the church? Do we understand what's going on? Nehemiah took the time to figure out the problem. Then he also took the time to pray about it, to get God's answer. And here's the reality. In the world in which we live, your ministry is rebuilding. It's either rebuilding your own life by the grace of God. It's rebuilding your family's life. It's rebuilding the church. It's rebuilding the, na- the community, the nation. Because all around us, the walls are burned. Why? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall. The rebellion of Adam and Eve against God caused the world to be in disrepair. And God has called builders all through the time. Think about Noah. Noah <clears throat> was called to rebuild. And how, what was his rebuilding project? His rebuilding project was to simply save a remnant when God was getting ready to level the foundation down to nothing. How about Moses? His rebuilding project was to rescue the people of Israel out of Egypt and to bring them to the promised land. What about David? He was to rebuild the kingship of Israel because Saul had been king. Saul had abused the people. Saul was a self-centered king and he had to rescue the people. And yet David had to wait for God to remove the man. He didn't even remove the man himself. He waited for God to do what he could do. The prophets... What was their rebuilding project? Their rebuilding project was to warn the people as they were heading down toward destruction to repent and to turn back to God so that they wouldn't reap the consequence of their sin. And then, of course, Ezra's rebuilding project was to rebuild the temple. We have plenty of work to do in rebuilding A lot of our focus, I think, in our church has been focused on rebuilding our family because we've seen what's going on and we've seen the destruction of the family. And so we made a real focus on rebuilding our families and fathers leading and mothers leading and encouraging the children and discipleship in the home. And that's good. 
But what we're going to have to do now to rebuild, I'm just talking now as FCF, is we are going to have to move just from having a vision that's on our family. We're going to have to have a vision that looks beyond our borders. We've got to look to Fredericksburg, the community of Fredericksburg, and we're going to have to get outside the walls to begin to interact with them and to share with them the gospel of Christ and to be a redemptive light in this community. We've done that to a degree, but we're going to have to do it to a greater degree to be what God wants us to be. And in the new year, we're going to be working on equipping us for evangelism and thinking of other ways to get out into the community. Some of our people are already in the community, working in different contexts. On the 20th, we're going to, after our fellowship meal, we're going to gather together and we're going to go out and we're going to carol in certain neighborhoods of Fredericksburg with the gospel, with a gift, and begin to get out among the people by God's grace. The vision here is to move beyond our own walls and to see new people in the pew, people who don't know Jesus, people who just came to know Jesus, but reaching out to those who don't know. Notice at the very end, 17 to the end, then he finally shares the plan with them. He says, you see the trouble we're in here now? Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. They all saw the problem. The reason he saw the problem is because they had reported back to him there was a problem. So everybody was aware of the problem. This was not brand new news for them. They were under attack from their enemies from without. Look at what he says. Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, or another word is be a disgrace. Jerusalem with its walls down was a disgrace to the God of the universe. And it burdened Nehemiah's heart that it was a disgrace. And for the love of God's name and the love of God's kingdom, he was willing to take, get away from his cush position as the cupbearer in a very prominent nation, roll up his sleeves, get on a horse, come in, and do what needed to be done to rebuild the walls. Notice what he does. He calls them to an activity together. This work cannot be done by Nehemiah alone. Just like the work in the church can't be done just with the leadership alone. Just in the family, the family's work can't be done just with the husband or wife alone. It calls for everyone to rally and to build and to be strengthened. Look at verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. What a testimony. What does he tell them? He brings them up on speed on God's gracious kindness to them. He shows them, I'm here. Because the king said, go. And the king said, yes, take timber from our forests. 
And the king said, oh yeah, here's the letters that you need. And the king said, oh, by the way, on top of that, here's a, an army to go with you to protect you. And look at the response of the people to the sovereign hand of God. God did an incredible work there. And look what they say. Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. So Nehemiah shared the vision with them and shared God's providential kindness in that. And they were encouraged and they said, let's rise up and build. Now, notice we have another but. Number 19, verse 19. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem heard of this, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? This is a typical strategy. When Christians try to do something, they're in somehow rebellion against the king. We see this back in Ezra chapter 4. In Ezra 4, they were building the temple and the people wrote to the king saying, listen, these people are raising up that rebellious city, Jerusalem, that caused y'all so much trouble before. And the king said, okay, shut that work down. So they're trying the same plot again. You Christians are just trying to, you Jews are just trying to rebuild Jerusalem, that rebellious city. And it's a direct re rebellion against the people, against the king. Notice what Nehemiah says. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Do you see the confidence of Nehemiah? The confidence is in his God. The confidence is God has already begun to move and work on his behalf. And now he says to them, you have no part of this. You're not part of his work. God will make us prosper. And so begins the building of the wall of Jerusalem. We are called as Christians to be rebuilders. Your first walls you need to look at is your own life. What is it in your life that needs to be rebuilt? You need to mourn about that. And you need to call out to God for help. And you may need to assist the assistance of somebody else to come alongside you to help you in that. But God is all about rebuilding. He's all about rebuilding your life. If you don't know Jesus, he's about laying the foundation of Jesus as your foundation. And putting your complete trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, but part of your wall is broken down, he calls you to repent. He calls you to trust him and believe that he can do what you can't do. 
Praise God, he is the builder who does what we can't do. As you survey your family, as you, as you see a child wandering away from the faith or becoming rebellious or becoming indifferent to life itself, don't just sit there and watch that. Grieve over that. Mourn over that. Petition God over that. And then plan. How am I, by God's grace, going to change this situation? As we look at the church and we see this church and where it's at, what do we need to do to take it to the next level? What do we need to do to make it a light in this community in which the gospel of Christ is heralded not only in this pulpit but also in the lives of all of us who live in this community? And then what is it in our nation in which the walls are being broken down and where would God have us to serve whether it's abortion or it's unwed mothers or it's people in need Nehemiah is a book of action he didn't just pray and pray and pray and pray and that's all he did he prayed and he labored in prayer and then he had a plan. All of us need to look at each of our lives, our family, the church, and begin to plan. If God moves, what will I be able to do? Maybe you have a neighbor who's lost as can be, and their heart is as hard as a rock. What's your plan? Your plan is to first pray. And then your next step is to what? Plan, what am I going to do? What little steps am I going to take to introduce the gospel to them? While there are many kingdom projects from making churches in third world countries to you name it, the primary kingdom building work that we're to be about is not building walls. It is making disciples. That is the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. May God give us a mourning over the fact of our lack of discipleship making. May God give us the desire to repent and to put ourselves into situations where we can proclaim the gospel of Christ. Some questions as we close. How much do you mourn over the state of your soul, your family, your church, your society? Two, are you drawn to prayer as you hear reports of disrepair in any of these spheres? Or do you just worry? 
or do you get depressed? How passionate are you about his kingdom come? His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What things in your life should concern you more than they do? And finally, what things in your life should you be talking, taking before the Lord in prayer and making plans to rebuild should the Lord provide opportunity? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we are so grateful that you are a rebuilding God. And Father, I pray that over this holiday time that we would take evaluation of our own lives. And Lord, as as heads of our home, that fathers would take evaluation of their family and what needs to change in their family and in their leadership. Lord, that you give us as leaders of the church wisdom on what to do to make your church more of a light to the community. And Father, as all believers, citizens of this country, what you'd have us to do with the walls that are coming down around us in our country. Father, may we be men and women of action, prayer, dependence, and worship on you, but men and women of action who are about your kingdom coming and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.